All right, I'm going to start with a story. It's a little longer story. I think you'll like it. Um, I could probably tell a similar story in my own words from my own life, but I just like the way the author worded it. I have a handful of quotes, I think, this morning just because I, I just couldn't mess with the wording on some of these. But here's a story. I think you'll connect with it. Grandmother was at her feistiest when it came to Monopoly. Periodically, leaders like General Patton or Attila the Hun develop a reputation for toughness. They were lapdogs next to her. Imagine Vince Lombardi had produced an offspring with Lady Macbeth, and you get some idea of the competitive streak that ran in my grandmother. She was a gentle and kind soul, but at the Monopoly table, she would still take you to the cleaners. When I got the initial $1,500 from the bank to start the game, I always wanted to hang on to my money as long as possible. You never know what chance card might turn up next. The board is a risky place. But my grandmother knew how to play the game. She understood that you don't win without risk, and she didn't play for second place. So she would spend every dollar she got. She would buy every piece of property she landed on. She would mortgage every piece of property she owned to the hilt in order to buy everything else. She understood what I did not at that young age, that accumulating is the name of the game, that money is how you keep score, and that the race goes to the swift. She played with skill, passion, and reckless abandon. Eventually, inevitably, she would become the master of the board. When you're the master of the board, you own so much property. Or maybe we could say, in light of what we'll talk about this morning, you have so much power that no one else can hurt you. When you're the master of the board, you're in control. Other players regard you with fear and envy, shock and awe. And from that point on, it's only a matter of time. She would watch me land on boardwalk one time too many, hand over to her what was left of my money, and put my little race car marker away, all the time wondering why I had lost yet again. Don't worry about it, she'd say. One day you'll learn how to play the game. I hated it when she said that. And then one year, when I was 10 years old, I spent a summer playing Monopoly every day with the kid who lived around the corner. Gradually, it dawned on me that the only way to win the game was to make a total commitment to acquisition. No mercy and no fear. What my grandmother had been showing me for so long finally sank in. By the fall, when we sat down to play, I was more ruthless than she was. My palms were sweaty. I would play without softness or caution. I was ready to bend the rules if I had to, slowly. Cunningly, I exposed the soft underbelly of my grandma's vulnerability. Relentlessly, inexorably, I drove her off the board. That game does strange things to you. I can still remember it happened at Marvin Gardens. I looked at my grandmother. This was the woman who had taught me how to play. She was an old lady by now, a widow. She had raised my mother. She had loved my mother as she loved me, and I took everything she had. As I destroyed her financially and psychologically, I watched her give up her last dollar and quit in utter defeat. It was the greatest moment of my life. (laughs) I had won. I was cleverer and stronger and more ruthless than anyone at the table. I was master of the board. But then my grandmother had one more thing to teach me. The greatest lesson comes at the end of the game, and here it is. My grandmother said, Now it all goes back in the box. All those houses and hotels, all that property, boardwalk and park place, the railroads, the utility companies, all those thousands of dollars, when the game is over, 
It all goes back in the box. Now, I've heard a few sermons tell generally the same, other preachers, generally the same story. And, of course, you can land on that last line. It all goes back in the box and reflect upon what you're investing your life in. Maybe it's fitting to pause and do that for a second this week as it is Palm Sunday and we're entering Holy Week and heading towards Good Friday and the death of Jesus. But I want to kind of take a slightly different angle. I enjoyed that story for a few reasons, but, but one of the things the story reminds you of is that, that there's more going on than just this game. Now, if you've been walking with Jesus for a while, if you've been a part of Crossview for a while, you've heard what I'm going to say before. I've said it before, but I, I find that we often need to hear this again and again. But if you're here and you're new to Christianity, if you're curious about Jesus, then maybe what I'm about to say to you is going to echo and resound in your mind and your heart as true. You want it to be true, but you're not sure how it could be true. And maybe... By the end of our time this morning, maybe the Holy Spirit will stir and this will make a little bit more sense. But here's what I propose to you this morning. Life is a gift to be lived, not a game to be won. Life is a gift to be lived, not a game to be won. Or even just to piggyback of Julie's language, life is a gift to be risked. We'll talk a little bit about that. Life is a gift to be lived, a gift to be risked. It's too precious to keep hidden away. And it's not a game to be won. Now, humans have always tried throughout human history to make life a game. But it's not a game, it's a gift. And I, and I offer to you that if you can accept this morning that life is a gift, it can change the way you're living. And it will excite in you if life is a gift and it's meant to be cherished and enjoyed. It'll make you want to know the giver. Who's the one who gives this gift? I mean, that's the greatest thing we can offer you this morning. An invitation, an opportunity to get to know the giver of your life. It's a gift to be lived. But maybe, again, maybe you're new. I, I, I like to respect where we're at on our journeys. Maybe you're new, and as I said, it echoes, it resounds in your head. It sounds true, it sounds intriguing, but you don't know how to change your paradigm. You've lived so long trying to beat others, trying to get yours before, before they get theirs. You just, it's a paradigm shift for you. It, it feels like a big jump to say life's not a game, it's a gift. So let me at least try to meet you where you are this morning as we talk about Jesus. And even if you're having trouble breaking the paradigm, and you may actually need the help of God to get there. You may need the work of the Holy Spirit to help you see it in a different way. But as you get to know this giver, as you get to know Jesus, you will discover that even if you're trying to play a game, he's playing by a whole different set of rules. He's living so differently, so counter to how we live. It, it grabs your attention and you want to know more. Maybe it's, I mean, it's apparent all the way through the life of Jesus, but maybe it's no more apparent than this final week of his life. We're in Lent, we're, in this, we're trying to follow the church calendars, Palm Sunday. We're not going to read the Palm Sunday story this morning. I usually preach the Palm Sunday story on Palm Sunday. I'm not going to today because I'm following the church calendar and the Book of Common Prayer and in year C, which is what we're following, we have a different text. 
But I thought I'd at least talk a little bit about that Palm Sunday story, right? Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and he's being heralded as the king, the Messiah, the long-awaited king of the Jews. And in everybody's mind, this Messiah is going to lead the Jewish people back to prominence and overthrow the Roman oppressors. And we'll talk quite a bit about the Roman oppressors this morning that are, that are making life so difficult. But if you know the story, people are lined up. Jesus is coming in. There's a procession. They're shouting, Hosanna. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God saves. And Jesus comes riding in. This is where one of the first clues you have that he's playing. Well, he's not really playing, but but he's playing by different rules than you and I. (laughs) Because he comes in on a donkey. (laughs) I mean, you would expect, everybody would expect that, that if he's coming as king to overthrow the Romans, he's coming in on a war stallion. This powerful horse that just projects his authority. I mean, have you, I should have put a picture up. Have you seen a donkey? They are ridiculous animals. And one of the gospel writers says that he's on the cult of a donkey. I've said this before, but I, to kind of contemporize this, picture Jesus coming down Main Avenue on just this little scooter with both legs running on the ground, right? He looks ridiculous. And immediately you're like, what, 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 what game is he playing? What world, what is he doing? That's not the way this works, but people are still excited. He's fulfilling prophecy, and he's being incredibly honest about what he's come to do. We see the humility of Jesus, this humility that it's just just different. We see, we'll talk about the vulnerability of Jesus. So our text is chapter 23. Uh, verses 1, actually the text is 1 to 49, but we're going to stop at verse 26 and then we'll pick up on Good Friday. We'll kind of walk through, there's more verses than normal. Uh, then the entire council, and he's talking about the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish leaders, the, the high priest Caiaphas, he's talking about all these people. They, Jesus has become a threat to their power. And their authority. They don't like Jesus. They don't like what he's doing. He's messing things up for them. And so they bring him, it says, the entire council took Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor. Why? Because they, the, their solution, and we'll talk about different kingdoms, different rules, different ways of engaging in this life. Their solution is let's get rid of Jesus. Let's kill him off. He's calling, causing problems. People are following him instead of us. Let's eliminate the problem. But the Jewish people in this time, in the first century, they don't have the power or the authority to kill someone off like this. Only Rome does. Only Pilate has that power, and so they have to bring him before Pilate. Now, even there, just let me ask you the question. If you have the choice to choose which kingdom you want to inhabit, do you want to inhabit a kingdom where your greatest power is the power of death? Or do you want to inhabit a kingdom where your greatest power is the power of life? (laughs) Because that's Jesus is bringing a different kingdom, a kingdom that is not of this world. And those are the choices that we have to make. Verse 2, they began to state their case. This man has been leading our people astray by telling them not to pay their taxes, which isn't true. Lots of false accusations against Jesus. Don't pay your taxes to the Roman government and by claiming he is the Messiah, a king. Now that's what would get Rome's attention as well. Uh, you weren't allowed to challenge Caesar. Two, two kinds of people were crucified, slaves who had run away and those who challenged Caesar. So Pilate asked him, and Pilate's taken in this whole Jesus thing. He, he, he understands a little bit about what's been going on, and he asked the question, and I, 
I really do think there'd be this kind of emphasis. Are, are you? Are you the king of the Jews? Maybe almost laughing because he looks at Jesus. He doesn't look like these other would-be messiahs who challenge Rome. His followers weren't really armed with weapons. When Jesus was arrested, there was no riot, and now his, his followers were, were hiding in fear of danger. This doesn't add up the way that Pilate thinks it would add up if Jesus was really a threat. But Jesus replies, you have said it. In fact, I have one of those red-letter Bibles. In my, in my Bible, that's the only red letters that appear in this whole text. Jesus is going to be falsely accused again and again, and this is, in essence, what he says. Now, he has a few more conversations, even with Pilate, we learn about in the Gospel of John, but in the overall proceedings, this is really what Jesus says. Verse 4, Pilate turned to the leading priest, to the crowd, says, I find nothing wrong with this man, which is really important. For my judgment, this man is innocent. But they become insistent. He is causing riots by his teaching wherever he goes, all over Judea, from Galilee to Jerusalem. Which again, if you've read through the Gospels up to this point, you know, Jesus has taught love, peace, and forgiveness. The crowds have gathered because they've wanted to be healed. And if anyone's causing the riots, it's really the Jewish leaders, but that's what they say. Pilate hears, oh, he's a Galilean. Well, well, well. When they said that, Pilate sent him to Herod Antipas because Galilee was under Herod's jurisdiction and Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at the time. Pilate really wanted nothing to do with what was going on with Jesus. Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus because he had heard about him and had been hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. He asked Jesus question after question, but Jesus refused to answer. Again, I just, uh, this is probably a sermon for another day, but I just am fascinated by the way Jesus responds to false accusation. <laughs> he doesn't get all worked up. He doesn't get defensive. We'll talk a little bit more about why some of that might be, but Jesus just remains silent. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the teachers of religious law, led by Caiaphas, the high priest, stood there shouting their accusations. And Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus. They put a royal robe on him and they sent him back to Pilate. And Luke tells us that Herod and Pilate, who had been enemies before, became friends that day. And then Pilate called together the leading priests and the other religious leaders along with the people. And he announced his verdict. You brought this man accusing him of leading a revolt? I have examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence and I find him Again, notice this, innocent. I find him innocent. Herod came to the same conclusion. He's not guilty of what you're charging him with. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty. Now I want you to see even here what happens next as we're dealing with corruption and the abuse of power. Pilate says he is innocent. He is not deserving death. But what is the next thing he says? but I'll still have him beaten, and then I'll release him. How's that for justice? He's not guilty of anything you're saying, but I'll still beat him and have him released. How's that? Then a mighty roar rose from the crowd. With one voice, they shouted, kill him, release Bar Barabbas to us. Now, Barabbas was in prison for 
the very thing Jesus is being accused of, taking part in an insurrection in Jerusalem against the government and for murder. He had killed people in his attempt to overthrow Rome and he had failed. So Barabbas is on trial for what Jesus is being accused of. Pilate argued with them because he wanted to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. The same crowd that was shouting Hosanna on Palm Sunday is now shouting, crucify him. What's going on? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that Jesus is playing by a different set of rules. And he came in on a donkey and they're like, all right, we'll give him that. But we'll see his might and his power this week. And they never see it at least not in the way that Jesus wants to reveal it. And so I think they go the same route that you could say Judas goes down. They have wanted to follow this man so that he could violently lead this revolution and overthrow Rome, and Jesus doesn't end up being the Messiah that they want. And they're mad, and they're disenchanted, and they want him dead. And I think even more than that, the Jewish people hate the Romans. They do not like Pilate at all. And they realize in this interaction that Pilate wants to set Jesus free. And I even think there's a piece of that there. They are shouting, crucify him. They want to crucify Jesus just to get back at Pilate. <laughs> oh, you've chosen Jesus. Well, then we'll say, put him on the cross. Whatever we can do to go against Pilate. And, and I hope he's, Jesus becomes I mean, he's the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and he, be, he becomes a pawn in this political game of power. They're just using him, manip- just pushing him around. Verse 22, the third time, Pilate demands, why? What crime has he committed? I found no reason to sentence him to death, so I will have him flogged and I will release him. And the mob shouted louder and louder, demanding Jesus be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate sentenced Jesus to die as they demanded. And as they had requested, he released Barabbas, the man in prison for insurrection and murder. Luke wants you to see that clearly. And he turned Jesus over to them to do as they wished. Let's pause there. These leaders, as is really the story of human history, are ultimately looking out for themselves. I mean, it's part of the contrast of Jesus. I really think Jesus is a king who looks out for his people. He's the good shepherd. It's hard to find a leader who has the heart of Jesus. One author says the central institutions of Jesus' world, the Roman occupying army and Pontius Pilate, the Roman's client king Herod Antipas, and the religious establishment led by the Jerusalem Sanhedrin and high priest Caiaphas, all play pivotal roles in the trials that lead to Jesus' condemnation. And in doing so, all of them are revealed to be deeply corrupt. They represent what Paul calls the powers and the principalities. And it becomes clear that the institutions with authority, far from safeguarding, flourishing, and protecting the innocent, right? There's no real desire to protect the innocent. They only exist for their own self-preservation and the protection of the powerful. Pilate, Jesus is innocent, but if it's him or me, it's going to be him. Now, what's on the table for Pilate? I talked about this a little bit ago. It's interesting. Pilate really is, in human standards, the person in all these stories who has the most power and control because he represents Rome. And yet he looks like the weakest person all the way through this, doesn't he? And part of it is because he's trapped from, from, from some of his past. 
We talked about this a few weeks ago, but in Luke chapter 13, they, they begin to talk about, when we were in Luke 13, we talked about this. I, I mentioned that at one point, Pilate had taken money from the temple treasury and he had used the money to build aqueducts, kind of for the waterworks for the city of Jerusalem. He thought he was doing a good thing, but the people in Jerusalem did not give their money to the temple to be used for that purpose. And so they kind of rebelled. They didn't like it. I mean, imagine, I mean, we have a lot of checks and balances and accountability here at Crossview for how we handle money, but imagine there was somebody who overstepped their bounds of authority and spent money that you've sacrificially given to God for his work, for a cause that you didn't feel like fit for what you gave for. And you, and you responded, you didn't like it, you voiced your opinion, and the answer was, well, shut up or we'll kill you. <laughs> I mean, that's basically what Pilate did, and he killed a lot of innocent people. It was this ugly ride. It didn't go well, and those who were higher up than Pilate in Rome didn't like the way he was leading. But Pilate continued to lead, and about the year 26 or 27, some Roman soldiers were brought into Jerusalem, and some of them were stationed in the temple precincts. Now, the Roman soldiers were all issued the same equipment, and one of the things they were issued was a shield that had the image of Tiberius Caesar on it. If you know anything about Jewish law, there were no images allowed in the temple precincts, and so the Jewish people didn't like this. They rebelled a little bit, and they, but, they, but they didn't do anything violent. They just appealed to Pilate first. Can you remove this? Can you give them shields that don't have an image? And Pilate said, don't, Pilate said, don't challenge my authority. No, it's going to stay this way. I want it this way. Always flexing his muscles. So somehow, the people were able to appeal to Tiberius Caesar himself. And Tiberius sided with the Jewish people over Pilate. Again, Pilate looks like a foolish leader. All this stuff has preceded what we encounter in Luke chapter 23. And in one of the other Gospels, we find Caiaphas saying to Pilate, I think, I mean, a brilliant political maneuver. If you release Jesus, you are no friend of Caesar's. In other words, there's this veiled threat. Pilate, we know about all your mistakes. And you know we can get to Caesar. And if you don't do what we want you to do, we're going straight back to Caesar. You're going to look like an even bigger fool. And Pilate's trapped. And again, rather than protecting the innocent, if if Pilate has to choose between himself or Jesus, he chooses himself. But he's haunted. He doesn't know what to do because in meeting Jesus, Pilate learned that he has never encountered anyone like this man before. I mean, Pilate is used to dealing with the chief priests and the elders because they, they, they seek to accommodate him in the interest of sustaining their positions. In other words, they're playing the same game that Pilate is playing. And they understand each other. I think that's part of why Luke says Herod and Pilate became... They, they understand each other. We're playing the same game. We know what we're doing. But, but Pilate, as he encounters Jesus encounters somebody who doesn't want anything from him. In other words, Pilate has nothing that Jesus wants. Jesus doesn't even ask Pilate for his life. They are operating out of different stories, completely different paradigms. Jesus is free. And Jesus, if you read through the stories, Jesus is one who always gives and always blesses. He's not a taker. He's a giver. Made me think of the story of Jacob. If you know the story of Jacob back in Genesis, Jacob is a taker, a taker, a taker. He's a heel grabber until he wrestles with God and he's changed. 
And part of the story of Jacob is that at the end of his life, when he's been transformed by God and he's learning the heart of God, he stands before Pharaoh, who's the most powerful man he's ever stood before, and all he does is bless him. Jacob has been freed, and so he gets to the point where he doesn't need to take anything from anyone else. He's learned that true human flourishing involves giving and blessing others because our God is generous. And that's what Pilate encounters in Jesus, a man who only gives. He needs nothing from Pilate because everything he he really needs, the Father provides. Jesus lacks nothing, and Pilate doesn't know what to do with him. I'm going to talk a little bit more about power, and I want to talk about it kind of as a calibration of vulnerability and authority. What we see in Jesus as we go through these trials and this condemnation uh, before, before Pilate, is a king, because Jesus truly is the king, but he's a king who's willing to bear vulnerability while setting aside his authority. Uh, I'll recommend a couple books to you. I think I've mentioned these books before, but there's an author named Andy Crouch. He wrote a book called Playing God. It's basically a biblical theology of power. I think, I think we need to give a lot of time to the way power gets used anytime we organize ourselves. And I think Andy Crouch has done a good job in his book, Playing God, of walking through what, is, what, what we were made in the image of God. We were made to exercise power. We were made to flourish. But what does that look like? And how do we steward that well? And how have we abused that power? And he has a second book called The Strong and the Weak. In this book, it really caught my attention because if you ever go through our discipleship pathway form, we will talk about love as a calibration of grace and truth. What John says in chapter 1, the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Well, in his book on human flourishing on power, Andy Crouch, it's the strong and the weak, he will say that true human flourishing, a true healthy exercise of power always involves a calibration of authority and vulnerability. I think it parallels beautifully with grace and truth. And he has this to say, the marriage of authority and vulnerability is only possible if we are willing to bear vulnerability without authority. Our mission in the world is to help individuals and whole communities flourish, but to do so, especially to set people free who have suffered the most from idolatry or addiction or injustice or oppression, it requires us to go where no one wants to go, a voluntary exposure to pain and to loss. He says, why is this necessary? Well, it's because of the extraordinary grip of idols over our world. The idols are all the forces that whisper the promises of control, of unchallengeable power and independence. And then having seduced us with those promises, enslave us to their demands and blind us with their distorted view of the world. In other words, I like to say that the danger of idols is that they make all kinds of promises that they can't deliver on. But you and I don't realize that in some of these idols, we don't realize for years and years that we have been bound and chained and and, and enslaved to these idols, these false gods. 
That's part of what gets us set up into thinking that our neighbor is actually our competitor and I've got to get mine before they get theirs. It's all a lie. It's a distorted view of the world. Life is not a game to be won. It's a gift to be lived. And we have been so completely conquered by idols' lives, so enslaved to their domination that we cannot truly comprehend, let alone attain, a life that is as exposed to meaningful risk as it is capable of meaningful action. We want to have lives that are filled with meaningful action, but it's going to involve meaningful risk. In a healthy world, every increase in authority would be matched by an increase in risk or vulnerability. This is the pattern that would keep us dependent on God and one another. We would risk so we would be dependent on each other and on God. And it would empower others rather than hoarding power. And we would discover new dimensions of human flourishing. But in the world as we know it, acts of authority frequently insulate us from risk rather than opening us up to it. In fact, when I hear of prominent pastors falling and you get behind the story, it usually is a story where authority grew and grew and grew and vulnerability was never calibrated with it. And then these leaders of the church end up in these situations where they have too much power or too much authority without, without the necessary balance of vulnerability that is demanded of leaders in the kingdom of God. And then tragic stories unfold. The New Testament tells us again and again that we don't lack authority. We're made in the image of God. And our problem isn't acquiring enough authority because if you are in Christ, then you have all the authority that you will ever need. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, all things are yours. (laughs) But, and this is part of what I want you to see, what unlocks that authority is the willingness to expose ourselves to meaningful loss to become vulnerable. You could even say to become woundable in the world. For this is part of what it means to bear the divine image. If the one through whom all things were made spoke into being a world where he himself could be betrayed, wounded, and killed. (laughs) That's the path Jesus went. So what we are missing to become like him is not ultimately more authority. It is likely more vulnerability. Life is a gift, a gift to be lived. And if, in fact, Christ has been raised, then no meaningful risk is too great for his capacity to rescue. So I ask, what could truly open our eyes? What would change our paradigm? What would help us see that life isn't a game to be won, but a gift to be lived? One author says this, Well, what if someone were to dramatically empty himself of all authority, voluntarily give up the capacity for meaningful action, be handed over to the most exploitative forces in our cosmos, and suffer death? And what if that same person were to return rescued, fully alive indeed with far more authority than we had ever seen or imagined? Such a complete sacrifice and victory may just open our eyes. In the wake of such a sacrifice and such a triumph, human beings would be set free from their fantasies of authority without vulnerability. They would see with their own eyes and touch with their hands the evidence that God's power is greater even than death. His kingdom is a kingdom of life, not of death. And they would know that we all have hope when God acts to rescue and restore. 
You know, I was thinking about this. There's two ways to respond to a gift, a precious gift, a valuable gift, a gift as great as the gift of life that you and I are offered. One of the ways is to view the gift as so valuable it can't be risked. I was thinking about this. I grew up every holiday. We lived close to my grandma, who was also competitive, but in cards, not in Monopoly. (laughs) But my grandma, she has the ultimate grandma name too, Grandma Wilma. You want a Grandma Wilma? Grandma Wilma, we had every holiday pretty much at Grandma Wilma's house. And uh, maybe the Wednesday before, the day before, we would go out to Grandma's and we would set the table and we always got out this fancy china and this silverware that was only used on the days of holidays. So cool. I thought it was so awesome. I loved it. But come to my great surprise, one day in my own house, I discovered that my mom had special china too a special case of silverware that I had never seen before because we spent every holiday at Grandma's. And I am 43 years old. I never once used that special china in my mom's house. I mean, do you have any gifts like that that are so precious and so valuable you don't want to break them so you save them for a special occasion and then you never use them? What a waste. I mean, the other option with a valuable gift is to look at it and say, it's too valuable to keep hidden. I've got to get it out there so people can see it and enjoy it. I've got to risk it. Yes, people might misunderstand it. Yes, people might mistreat it. But it is so great, so awesome. I just want to share this. I mean, life is a gift. Your life is a gift. It's a gift that we receive. And we risk the gift. And we risk the gift knowing that even if we fail or mess up or, or something goes awry or we break something, that our heavenly father, he's the great physician. And even if you break the gift along the way, he will piece it back together because that's what the Holy Spirit does, right? We serve a Trinitarian God. And he heals you and restores you. And somehow, actually, I don't know how this works, but somehow you're more beautiful after you've been broken and put back together than you were before. That's part of the beauty of the gospel. So we receive this gift with joy and we share it with others and we risk because we have to, because it's the way that Jesus has shown us. Now I want to read verse 26. I'm not going to spend much time on this. We're almost done. But, but just to take it one step for, for further. Verse 26 reads this way. As they led Jesus away, a man named Simon who was from Cyrene happened to be coming in from the countryside. The soldiers seized him and they put, him on, put the cross on him and they made him carry the cross behind Jesus. Uh, we, I could go into a little bit more detail. If you have questions, I can tell you about it. But, but Simon, I think, becomes a Christian. His, his children, Mark will talk about his children, Alexander and Rufus, they become leaders in the church of Rome. That's why they're mentioned in the gospel of Mark because that was the gospel to the church in Rome and they would have been known. Simon becomes a Christian. He gets up close and personal. He gets a firsthand account of the vulnerability of Jesus. He sees the way Jesus recycles hatred and evil into love and mercy and forgiveness and it transforms him. And Simon becomes the model for all of us who in devotion, holiness, and service tread behind Jesus on the road of humility, pain, and even death. 
So as the story continues, the story of Jesus, we learn and we, and we keep needing to relearn that the cross is not simply a one-time deal in the life of Jesus or of God. No, the cross is the clue about how you and I will live alternatively in this world. The, cr- the cross is the beginning of understanding how life is a gift and not a game. Because the cross tells us that Jesus Christ gave his life. When you and I were dead in our sins and transgressions, when you and I didn't deserve it, Jesus gave his life so that you and I could have life. God loves us passionately and he wants to bring us joy and flourishing, but this never precludes a cross. You could say that God's love is always refracted through the cross. So it often makes it hard to see or recognize, but if we are to learn to trust, to be dependent upon God, to trust that the love of God will provide everything that we need, we can only learn this through taking up the cross, following Jesus. God's raging and unbounded love gives worth and purpose to all of our vulnerability, but it always involves a cross. So instead of rescuing us from vulnerability, God often calls us more deeply into it. But here's one of the things I like to tell you, right? The discipleship journey involves learning more about Jesus. And as we learn more about Jesus, we then learn more about ourselves. And as we learn more about ourselves, our sinfulness, our selfishness, our idols, our weaknesses, our limitations, it begins to open up our eyes to how big and grand the love of God really is. And you begin to learn how unshakable you can trust the love of God. And I want to end with this quote, and then I'll pray for us. But I read this this week, and I loved it. The unshakable reality of love breaks across the shadows of vulnerability and death. And we see that this gift of life can only be lived if there is a God who loves us. A giver, right? We weep because we can lament to one who cares about our sorrow. We watch because we believe that love will not abandon us. We work because God is restoring the world in love. We can sleep because God governs the cosmos out of love. Every sickness can be transformed by love. When we're weary, we are given rest because we are loved. Love meets us even in death, bearing blessing. In our suffering, we are comforted by love. In affliction, God dwells with us in love, and every joy in life flows freely from the deep source of God's love. Everything we have asked of God, his tending, his giving, his blessing, his soothing, his pitying, his shielding, is all for the sake of his love. Because life is a gift and not a game, Jesus changes the way we see, even the way we see the cross. Before Jesus, the cross was a, was a traumatic and horrific symbol of death. And after Jesus absorbed all that evil had to offer, the cross now has become a symbol of life and forgiveness and love and hope and resurrection. So I invite you, I appeal to you, trust Jesus. If you're new to Christianity, trust Jesus. Trust his death. Trust his, his death for your sins, his, his forgiveness of your sins, and his offer, and trust his resurrection. Trust that you don't have to play a game that will wear you down, that, that he wants to give you a life that is better than you could have ever imagined. Trust Jesus, and then follow him. Walk this path of discipleship. Trust the path that he gives you. Take up your own cross and follow him. 
Trust his love. Trust that the Father will provide everything you need. Live the gift. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Jesus. Jesus, you have done so much to reveal yourself, but the clearest expression of who you are and your love for us is you on the cross. Now, we think a lot about power consciously and subconsciously, but on the cross we learn that your power is hidden in a weakness that quietly overcomes the world. So, Jesus, we ask you this morning to change our paradigm to open our eyes to see this power at work. This power that is filled with more authority than we can comprehend, but also somehow comes to us through unimaginable vulnerability. May we walk in this power, this cruciformed power, as we live out your alternative vision, kingdom of God vision for the world. Jesus, would we be willing to risk vulnerability because this gift is too precious to keep hidden. And even when we're knocked down and even when we're beat up and we're flogged and we're hurt, would we learn from you how to give back mercy and forgiveness and love? Would we learn from you how to receive healing and be a healing presence ourselves? Jesus, you give us so much hope. And we say thank you this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.